right, let's turn to where that passage is, Philippians chapter 1. Last week we covered the introduction, so this week we're going to uh, cover verses uh, 3 through, well, I'm going to read 3 through 11, but we're going to do 3 through 8. The next week we'll do 8 through 11. So this 8 is sort of a transitional verse. Uh, so, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the the fruits of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, graciously open your holy and eternal word to us poor people and establish us in the knowledge of your will and direct all who err in your word to the right way again so that we may live according to your divine pleasure. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Twenty years of ministry have taught me a number of things. And one of the things that it has taught me is that ministry can be very difficult. There are times when it can be incredibly discouraging. But one of the things it's also taught me is that the relationships that are forged in the fire of ministry uh, can often be the finest relationships of all. And that's where Paul is right now as he talks uh, or writes to the Philippians, I think he's trying to encourage a discouraged group of people, people who are experiencing uh, some pressure from outside of the community to change their beliefs, as well as some conflict within their own community of faith. It was not an easy day to be a Christian in Philippi when Paul wrote this letter, and Paul knew about this firsthand from planting the church there, but also as uh, messengers had gone back and forth between uh, Philippi and wherever Paul was. But at this point, of course, it was in a Roman prison. But these relationships still mattered to Paul. And it's to that that we turn our attention. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus preserves gospel partnerships through love and prayer. And I guess I wrote those in reverse order from how I'm actually going to deal with them. So the first thing I want us to talk about is Jesus preserves gospel partnerships through joyful prayer. He does write to a church that is 
increasing uh, experiencing internal conflict as i said it is experiencing external pressure and uh, maybe it's a bit of eisegesis on my part that means the reading into something um, uh, but i can understand these people being incredibly discouraged i'm discouraged so perhaps i'm reading into it but i think in light of what's going on it's reasonable to think that they were a church that was discouraged and Paul, uh, Paul is seeking to encourage them. And so he begins after his greeting with, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul is thankful. And he expresses uh, this gratitude that he experiences to God. He's not thankful to the Philippians, but he's thankful to God for the Philippians. Maybe that might just seem to be a semantic difference, but I think it's a very incredible, uh, important difference that's going on here. We see it similarly in Romans 1, first, in verse 6, verse 8, it says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so there we see uh, Paul is thankful, once again, to God for the Christians who lived in Rome. We see a similar thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which would seem a little counterintuitive in many ways. Uh, verse 14, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And so this rather uh, rambunctious group of Christians in Corinth, whom uh, if we probably knew would not be thankful for, Paul was. Because despite all of their problems, they were still recipients of the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we come to an interesting sort of little dilemma with regards to the grammar of this. It could be read one of two ways. It could be, your remembrance of me. Okay? Uh, which would mean pointing to the fact that they continued to support Paul even when he was in prison. And so, it would be, I thank my God in all your remembrance of me. When I get those letters, when I get those messengers, when I get those gifts from you, I am thankful to God for you. It could also be, as the ESV and many other translations put it, the idea of, I am thankful for my remembrance of you for those times when you come to my mind. That's a slightly different uh, look at it. It could be, when he thinks about them, when they pop up in his brain, he is thankful for them. Now, that's key because, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we will see that sometimes, well, let's remember, sometimes we think about people we're not thankful for. Our enemies, the people who uh, who, who squat in our head and say nasty things about us. But these, when, when, when Paul thinks of these people, these Philippian Christians, Paul is thankful to God. He's thankful, he's grateful 
in spite of their own particular shortcomings and failures. For instance, the strife that was taking place within the church, which he's going to address later on in the letter. Uh, For instance, the lack of humility and service that seems to characterize some elements of the Philippian church. Despite that, he's still thankful for them. He's not expecting them to be perfect, but he is expecting them to trust in Christ and to grow. (laughs) And so it's sort of like our kids. We love them. We recognize they're not perfect, but we still love them despite their failings, despite their flaws. And even more than kids, it should be our spouses that we also love that we also encourage, we're also thankful for, despite their ongoing shortcomings and failings. And if you aren't sure about your shortcomings and failings, maybe you should just ask your spouse, and I'm sure (laughs) they'll give you one. They'll give you one. But still gratitude that prevails Paul's sentiment toward them. Again, he's not writing to beat up on them. He's writing to encourage them, to strengthen them. Are we grateful for the people that God puts in our lives and puts in our community? Do they know that we're grateful for them? Or do we have a hard time saying that? He continues, and so shall I. Always, in every prayer for you, enjoy. Paul is consistent in his gratitude. Paul is also consistent in his prayer on behalf of the Philippians. He didn't just thank God for them, but he also prayed for them. And when he prayed for them, he had joy when he prayed for them. It was not difficult for him to do this perhaps because they made life easy for him in a, in a positive sense, not in a negative sense. Now, for instance, in Hebrews 13, it mentions, uh, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so the author of Hebrews is reminding his audience that um, it is a joy to leaders when the people are willing to follow, when the people are willing to submit. But leadership becomes a tremendous burden if they're always having to fight for everything. Third John, verse 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's a very similar sentiment here, you could, you could imagine. Paul is filled with joy in part because these Philippians who are a church that he planted are walking in the truth. And so the joy that he has when he prays for them is connected to the fact that they're still in the faith, that they're still moving forward. Knowing that he prays and he prays joyfully for them, not reluctantly for them, but joyfully, is intended to encourage them. 
Perhaps you've had one of those conversations where you may have been discouraged and someone says, I'm praying for you. And you know they actually mean it. And when that happens, it can be very encouraging. I remember when I was in seminary and I had made one of my pilgrimages back home, uh, one of the uh, senior saints in our congregation, um, one of my friends had lived in her house for a while. And uh, she said, Steve, I just want you to know, I'm praying for you. That was good. I was encouraged because uh, there were aspects of life in the seminary that were incredibly difficult. I was under a lot of financial strain, and, and, uh, and that flows out into all kinds of areas of life. And so it was encouraging to know that Mrs. Gay was praying for me. And oddly enough, I mentioned her in a sermon, uh, an Easter sermon, my first year in the ministry. And then a couple of weeks later, she was at a graduation in Florida. <laughs> hey! <laughs> she had started to uh, winter in Florida and uh, knew someone who was graduating. So we got to catch up a little bit. Paul is encouraging them, not only by his prayers, but by letting them know that he prays. So, why is he praying for them? And and why is he joyful when he prays for them? Their partnership with him in the gospel that's really what this is about. This is what it's getting back to. Their, their, their fellowship is another way of, of translating that word that's here, partnership. Their fellowship in the gospel. They're, they're partaking of the gospel. Now this, this phrase can be used for something as simple as business partners. Okay? But, uh, Paul here I think is more heart friends who are sharing in a common goal and purpose. And the goal and purpose that he outlines here is the gospel. They're not in the gospel. They're not in a business relationship in the gospel. They're in a church planting, church expanding, church revitalizing sort of process, partnership for the gospel. They had a common faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. A common faith in Jesus as the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for sinners to make the atonement for their guilt. They had that common faith in Jesus who was resurrected from the dead. Jesus who could take away their guilt. Jesus who who gives them the Holy Spirit. That was their partnership. They were, they were partners in that Jesus. And they shared in the work of letting people know about that Jesus. They weren't just content to know of that Jesus themselves, but they had this partnership, this fellowship, this partaking together in this process of making this Jesus known. This is what they did. And so, as a result of this, they needed prayer. And Paul prays for them. Sinclair Ferguson notes that prayer involves entering into others' situations, needs, triumphs, and failures, and carrying them into the presence of God. And so prayer is, in in many ways, a very specific sort of thing. When you know about a person's situation, you're praying about that situation and the needs that are connected to it. Whether it's they have a need for money, whether they have a need for friendship, whether they have whatever their need is. 
bring that to God. When they're victorious, you're thankful with them, you're grateful. And when they're struggling, you're struggling with them and their failures. Do you pray for the people with whom you labor? It's very artificial in some ways, maybe if you look at it, but we do have um, next to our kitchen table an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. And it has seven days of the week, and it has different categories of people, and some of the categories are church officers, and another category is community group people, and we pray at mealtimes on that list. And so many of you are being prayed for by the Cavallaro family precisely because you are our partners in the gospel. We have fellowship with you in the gospel, and so we pray for you as a family. And as much as we know about your struggles, and as much as we know about your needs and situations, your failures and triumphs, we carry them into, carry you and them into the presence of God. Because that's what partners do. So Jesus preserves the gospel partnerships that he himself forms through this joyful prayer for each other. Secondly, Jesus completes the gospel partnership that he begins. How did these unlikely gospel partnerships or fellowships begin? And they are unlikely, as we saw in Acts chapter 16. We have Jewish people who are waiting for prayer that we have, uh, you know, outside of the city. And with them, there were some Gentile God-fearers, one of whom was the woman Lydia. We have the slave girls, possibly. Then we have the jailer, who is likely a Gentile and a hardened man, not a businesswoman, not a sophisticated businesswoman like Lydia. We had people from all different kinds of backgrounds, socioeconomic, cultural, ethnic, combined in this one little church, or maybe not so little church, working together with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, it didn't matter. They were partners together. I'm reminded of the fellowship of the ring. How these people from different races different parts of Middle Earth gathered together. Hobbits, those tiny little hobbits with a not-so-tiny dwarf, with an elf, with some humans, and no one in the world knows what Gandalf the wizard really was anyway. But they were made partners, that idea of fellowship of the ring, the purpose of the destruction of the ring of power. How did they get formed? Not just the council of um, on uh, Elrond. But we see that Christians are brought together not by a wizard, not by an elf, not by someone who is in a sense of many ways a peer of theirs, but instead we see he who began a good work in you, that it is God, that it is Jesus who begins this good work in the gospel partnership through 
individual conversion. We saw in Acts 16, we're talking about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she came to faith in Jesus. And so God begins this by opening people's hearts so they trust in that gospel message, and then trusting in that message, loving that message, begin to join that partnership of making that message known to other people. But Jesus didn't just begin this. Jesus continues this. He preserves this partnership that he then that he forms through evangelism, through church planting, through what we talk about as the support and the defense of the gospel. I think it was his certainty about this. I am sure, I am certain that he who began this good work, it was that certainty in the power of God in the willingness of God that drove Paul's gratitude and joy and prayer. He kept praying because he knew God was at work and that God would finish that work. He was praying to God because it was God who was doing it. And sometimes in our marriages we can, let's move it out of ministry for a moment, let's move it into marriage, okay, or, or any other relationship that you have, sometimes those things, those relationships become very tense and difficult. And we need to remember that God is at work in that person to finish the work that he started, and that should motivate us to pray. Because it's not just about that person's ability to get their act together, It's about the fact that God has begun that process of salvation and justification is continuing it in sanctification and will bring it to fulfillment and glorification. That God is at work. So the realization that God is at work should motivate us to be joyful, thankful, and prayerful in those relationships. And Paul says that he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God... perseveres with us so that we will persevere in faith. He's not like a child who starts a project and then walks away when it's half done. And don't worry, children. Adults do that too. They can put their hand to something and decide, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to learn how to play piano, or I don't want to learn how to play guitar. I don't want to learn how to paint. And sometimes that's okay, because maybe it's not you. But this is something different, because we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. The salvation of our soul, not merely the ability to play an instrument. Jesus is working. We need to remember that. We see that in John 5. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Lord didn't take the Sabbath off. Jesus didn't take it off, or everything would fall apart. He was working for salvation, for redemption. And Jesus continues to work for your salvation, your redemption in His heavenly ministry. God finishes 
what he begins. God brings it to completion. He does not have, or will not have, at the end of time, a number of unfinished projects, half-written books, partially made pottery. But when he's done, all of those things will be completed. Everyone's salvation that he actually began will be completed. It won't be partially done, mostly done, a little done. It will be done done. No more to do with it or for it. And God finishes what he begins precisely because it all rests upon the, the, the son's costly work of His obedience for us, of His death on the cross for us, of His resurrection for us. And so we're called to believe and to continue in faith with the recognition that it's really His hold on us that matters, not so much our hold on Him. For instance... Paul reminds the Galatians in chapter 3 of his letter, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, God didn't start it and now you finish it. God starts it, God continues it, God will finish it. Colossians 2, similar. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We don't begin the Christian life in one way, faith, and end it another way, works. But from beginning to end, it is faith in Christ who has worked for us. Hebrews 3 reminds them and us, for we have come to share or partake in Christ. That fellowship sort of notion. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we're called to persevere in faith even as we realize it's actually Him preserving us in faith. You know who needs to hear this? Weak people. (laughs) Paul's not writing to strong folks who think they have it all together. Paul is writing to weak and discouraged people because they need to hear it. That it's not how hard they run the race, but it's really Jesus who carries them. I'm reminded of those, uh, there's a number of clips you can find on YouTube where someone falters in a race. They get injured and they can't continue. And in some of those moments, someone comes out and carries them across the finish line. In some instances, it's a parent who comes out of the stands, picks up their child so they can finish. Sometimes it's a teammate comes back around, picks them up so they can finish. But it's a weak one who is carried to the finish line. And we, brothers and sisters, are all weak ones who are carried across the finish line by Jesus himself. So, 
we see that there is a fixed day of completion. The day of the Lord that we talk, that's talked about in the Old Testament is uh, now made a little more clear in the sense of it's the day of Jesus Christ because He is the Lord. There is a day when He will return. It's been fixed by the Father. We don't know when it is, however. And I guess I'm reminded of soccer games. Too much sports illustrations today, but hang with it. One of the reasons I don't like soccer is I never know when it's going to end. Because the clock ends, but the game goes on. Because the referee has this little piece of paper, and he writes down all the stoppages in play. Okay, guy got hurt, that's two minutes. Uh, We had that penalty, that's another three minutes. And so he's got on his list how much extra time has to be given to the game, but you don't know! (laughs) And neither do the players. I can't imagine playing a game and you're not knowing when the clock is going to finish. You don't know, you don't know how much longer you have so that you can, you know, conserve your energy and know what, or, or know, okay, I've got to make it happen in the next 30 seconds or it's all done. So I, I don't understand this. Those Europeans, man, I don't understand this. They're crazy. They are crazy. We don't know when Jesus will return, but He knows. And he will return at the appointed time. He will return to reward the faithful, and he will return to bring wrath upon the unfaithful. Jesus is bringing it either way. But we see that Jesus doesn't initiate salvation and then leave us to finish this process. It is grace from beginning to end. In a similar way, we should depend on God's grace so that we might finish the partnerships that have been started. Because sometimes we might be tempted to say, I've had enough of that person. And I can understand that. I can be difficult. But it's God's grace that alone can preserve gospel partnerships carrying us to finish the things that have been begun together. So Jesus begins, continues, and completes our salvation, including our gospel partnership. Thirdly, we see the affections of Christ fill gospel partnerships. Paul feels this need to defend his gratitude, to defend his joy, to defend his confidence about this partnership that he shares with the Philippian church in the gospel. And he tells them, I hold you in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace. They have fellowship together. I'm slightly change gears for a second. David's mighty men. There's a reason we read from that. These are men from all over the, the different tribes of, uh, of Israel, but they all had a focus, and that focus was getting David to be king. Okay? That's not necessarily our goal. We share in this, not because of our strength, but because of our weakness, because we are partakers 
with Paul of grace. It's not about your smarts. It's not about your strength. It's not about your uh, really superior gifts. It's about grace. Whoopsie. (laughs) But now, we see they have a common interest in the gospel. It is because they have received Christ. It is because that they have drunk deep of the waters of salvation from the well that is Jesus, the fountain that is Jesus. And so they have this uh, mutual partaking of this grace. Okay? But again, back to that idea. These are not just people on his mind but people that are on his mind with affection. He holds them in his heart. They're not his enemies that have rented space in his head. Uh, They're friends whom he just thinks about because he loves. He holds them in his heart. In my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So they were partakers with Paul of grace in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They stood with Paul while he was in prison. They sent him financial support. In those days, well, similar today, prisoners have accounts. But uh, you don't pay for all the guards and the walls and all that kind of stuff. If you were going to eat in prison then, someone had to provide your food. You'll still eat in prison today. These Philippians were amongst the people that were supplying the resources Paul needed to stay alive in prison. They were standing with him, encouraging him, praying for him, enabling, so to speak, his verbal defense of the faith, his confirmation of the gospel that was taking place, like the one we read about in Acts before uh, King Agrippa. Basically saying, you're right, right with me when I do these things. That's the kind of partnership we have, and that's why I have you in my heart. They supported him. And so he calls God as his witness to them. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He desires greatly to see them. That's the idea of the yearning that is there. But let's note, his affection from, for them, rather, comes from his union with Christ Jesus. That's the idea there of of the affection of Christ. The affection that has its source in Christ. And And how does it connect to Paul? Because Paul is united to Christ. And so Jesus' affection for the Philippian Christians becomes Paul's affection for the Philippian Christians. It's not something that Paul stirred up. It's not something that the Philippians stirred up. It's something Jesus stirred up. Do you understand? 
which is necessary precisely because they had such very different backgrounds. They listened to the to different kinds of music. They spoke different languages. They liked different foods. They had different love languages, however you want to put it. They were different in so many ways, and yet they had this affection. Paul has this affection, and it's not natural. But it's the affection of Jesus for His people given to Paul for His people. He loves them precisely because Jesus loves them, and He loves them because Jesus imparts His love for them to Paul. Why is that important? Because real life in a fallen world robs us of affection. It can quench it so easily because both parties have foibles. Both parties have flaws. Both parties have sins. happens in marriage and it happens in all kinds of relationships. And what we need to do, particularly in marriage and particularly in gospel partnerships, is to keep going to Jesus. I'm having a hard time loving so-and-so today. But you love them. Give me your love. It's not just help me to love but drawing on the love that Jesus has for them because you, you both are united to Christ. So some of those prayers are not going to be joyful. They're going to, you're going to be on your knees precisely because you're struggling with a lack of love because sometimes ministry and marriage and work are tough and they eat you for lunch. So the work of the gospel is difficult. There are pressures from the outside that could be discouraging. There could be strife inside the church or marriage because marriage is a gospel partnership if you're Christians. I forgot to say that earlier. If you're a Christian, your marriage is a gospel partnership. It's not about self-actualization and fulfillment. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ furthering it. We lose sight of the purpose for our partnerships when we're discouraged. We lose sight of the glory of Jesus Christ through the gospel. But Jesus preserves our gospel partnership through prayer that is joyful and full of gratitude for God's grace to both people. It is preserved by God who completes the good work that He begins both in salvation and in partnership with one another for the gospel. His plan of redemption in which we share by participation with Christ. But Jesus also fills us with affection for one another because of His affection for us. Like when you want to introduce good new friends to your best friend. 
The real work is all His. And He continues it while we're discouraged, while we're weak, while we're seemingly loveless. Because it's His work. For us, in us, through us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would, well, thank you for your people here. Thank you for the times they pray for one another. Thank you for the times they pray for me. Help us to have an even greater commitment to praying for one another. Father, help us to to trust in the fact that you're at work in each of us so that we don't give up on each other. So that we don't give up on what you're doing here. So we don't give up on our marriages, our friendships. Help us, Father, to seek your affection, the affection of Christ as well, for each other. Help us to have a vision, a greater vision for such a happy and holy place where brothers and sisters are dwelling in unity. And the oil of the gospel is making everything beautiful and easy. Uh, Do this great work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.